Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Genesis 25, verses 19 to 24. This is the account of the family line of Abram's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will, so- will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, something that I realized, for those who I may not know, my name is Justin, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, something I realized, I have not preached at REH in three weeks, which is like a record for us, Uh, so it's good to be back here, and I'm glad that probably most of you probably didn't even notice, that's a good thing, so uh, it's good to be here. Um, Let me start by simply asking you this question, how would you answer this question? Are you the master of your own destiny? Maybe to put it another way, to what extent are you actually in control of your future? To what extent are you responsible for your life even right now? And are you really solely responsible for having brought the successes of your life? And are you to blame for the hardships or the failures that have come into your life? I do wonder how many of us have stayed up late wrestling with those kinds of questions. I would imagine that some of us have spent no time whatsoever processing those kinds of questions. Some others here may have spent endless amounts of time obsessively trying to answer those kinds of questions. And while there's probably a lot of places in the Bible that we could go to try to wrestle through some of those questions, uh, today I want to do so by continuing on in our series uh, in the beginning where we have been looking at the book of Genesis. Today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to uh, begin uh, shifting our gaze off of one of the storylines that we've been, part, we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks, uh, which has been Abraham's story. And now we're going to be shifting as the story unfolds to the promised lineage that was given to Abraham and that God provided. And so for the rest of the series, including today, we're going to be looking at Abraham's family line, uh, particularly uh, his children, Isaac and Jacob, and then uh, his children as well. And it's significant that we do so uh, because one of the ways that God is often uh, referred to in the Bible is he's called the God of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. These three patriarchs, we call them fathers of the faith, are significant in the story of Genesis. And what we're going to see is that their role in the story actually shows us a lot about how God sovereignly works in the world. And today we're going to look specifically at one of the sons that we began looking at last week, was referenced last week, the son named 
Isaac, the promised son of Abraham named Isaac. And in particular, we're going to learn some very important, specific things about what the Bible has to say concerning one of the Bible's more difficult teachings, which is the sovereignty of God over the course of history and also over the course of your life. So today, to look at the sovereignty of God, I want to consider three different things that we can see here in this passage. First, I want to take a look at Isaac's story and God's sovereignty. I want to take a look at your story and consider your story and God's sovereignty. And then finally, we're going to take a look at God's promises in his sovereignty. Okay? So first, Isaac's story and sovereignty. First, what do I mean by the sovereignty of God? Well, the biblical idea of sovereignty really rests on the idea that God is ultimately uh, in control over all things, and that by his hands is the, the trajectory of history. And while there are a whole variety of different streams of thought as to how God's sovereignty works, let it suffice to say that at minimum, most would agree that God's sovereignty is the belief that God not only knows what's happened in the past, he's also very clear about what's happening in the present, and maybe more importantly to what we're going to discuss today, he knows what will happen in the future. There is nothing that takes God by surprise. And even more, you know, Romans 8 famously says that God uh, has good works or that he, he knows all things and that all things will eventually come to um, his purposes. That in the end, God calls certain people and that his purposes will be accomplished through those people. In other words, God's purposes exist and he is working them out to the end that he desires. And so with that in mind, we need to consider Isaac's story now to get our heads around this whole notion of God's sovereignty and what it actually looks like practically. And what I want to do, I want to highlight several aspects of Isaac's story that show us the way in which God is sovereignly at work, right, in control of, in power over aspects of Isaac's life. First, look at... Uh, or first, let me explain a little bit of what's coming up here in chapter 25. Back in chapter 24, what we're seeing is the beginning uh, stages of the story regarding Isaac's eventual marriage to his wife, Rebecca. Now, Isaac, he really needs a wife. And the reason why he really needs a wife is because if God's promises are going to be fulfilled, the promises that God gave to Abraham, then not only did Isaac's line need to continue, and Abraham, um, uh, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac's line now needs to continue with children. So if the line of Abraham is to be made into this great nation, which we saw that promise back in Genesis 12, Isaac is going to need a wife to carry on that line as well. Now, Abraham, his father, is aging and understands uh, the importance of a wife for Isaac. Uh, and something that is supposed to jump out at us in verse 20 of our passage here, we see that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. So it's not, it's not unimportant that Isaac is now at this point had many years of looking for a wife. And God in his sovereignty saw it fit to make Isaac wait a pretty long time to find a wife. So the first instance of God's sovereignty in the midst of this story is the manner in which he brings Isaac a wife, simply that it takes a long time. But the second thing that we see in this story is that it's Rebecca who he marries, 
And, of course, one of the main goals that they're going to have in developing this family is to have children. But then look at verse 21. It says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Why? Because she was barren. In other words, Abraham and Isaac waited a long time for a wife to come in order that this line might continue. But then, after they get married, they realize that Rebecca is barren, that she cannot have children. So the question comes up, well, what is God doing? Right? Why would God bring Rebekah to Isaac if one of the goals is to continue on this line of Abraham? Well, look at verse 22. Uh, verse 21 says that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, here's where I see God's sovereignty in the midst. It's God's control over, God's power over all things. God in his sovereignty required Isaac to come in prayer before granting he and his wife children. But why? Why, in knowing that they would eventually have children, did God decide to lead them through this journey of barrenness? Well, God in his sovereignty decided to make the pathway to child rearing a road that was marked by uncertainty and this physical ailment. God's sovereignty was there in the midst of it. A third thing that I see there about God in control over all things, God, God's power being present, uh, is the choice of Rebecca as Isaac's wife. She is far more than just the bearer of children, which unfortunately at the time might very well have been how many women would have been treated, but God certainly saw far more in her. While the text doesn't say it explicitly, uh, Rebecca's story actually gives some significant insight as to why she was the best fit for Isaac. Uh, in many ways, she is the exact opposite of her husband. Isaac, as we learn throughout his story, was a very conflict-avoidant person. Uh, one thing that we see in, in chapter 26 uh, we see him do the exact same thing that his father Abraham had done, uh, which was to put his wife's life in jeopardy by uh, lying about the fact that she was his wife, called her instead his sister, again, in order to protect himself, and in doing so, put his wife into danger. He was very much like his father. If you remember, Abraham did the same thing uh, to his wife at the time. However, in contrast to Isaac, Rebecca is actually a pretty assertive person. I can't get into it fully now, but if you go back in chapter 24, we see that she's an incredibly hard worker. Uh, we also know that she, when she wants something to get done, she will do what she needs to do in order to make it happen. And probably the most significant example of this uh, is that she would eventually give birth to Esau and Jacob. Uh, as the oldest son, Esau would have possessed all the rights to the inheritance of his father. Uh, he had the birthright. In other words, we'd expect, actually, that God would have been known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, not Jacob. That would have been the assumed trajectory. But if you know the story, Jacob would eventually, though, receive the blessing and receive this birthright from his father, Isaac. And Rebekah was at the center of the deception necessary to deceive Esau and her husband, Isaac, in order to make Jacob the heir and to receive the birthright. Again, can't get into that fully now. But she had heard this promise of God that we see in our passage here, 
that God had said that there would be two nations in her womb, that two peoples would come from uh, within you and shall be divided. And this is the, the more important piece, that the one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. In other words, it was going to be her younger son ruling over her older son. And so Rebecca, knowing this, she very much curates an experience, curates a situation where the younger son gets the blessing. She very much knows what she wanted. She pursued it. And God would use that deception as a means of accomplishing what he had prophesied was to come. So we cannot deny that God is obviously at work in the midst of all this. God makes Isaac wait for a wife. God then allows Rebecca to be barren, only granting them children after Isaac's prayer, and then allows the deception of Rebecca to be the means by which he accomplishes his purposes in bringing the line of Abraham through Jacob, not Esau. So, with all that said, what then are we to do with the reality that God is obviously, over all the circumstances being described here, and yet at the same time, there also seems to be this human element, right? There's, there's free persons making decisions freely in this story, while also unknowingly being part of God accomplishing his purposes through their decisions. It's a big convoluted mess of things from our perspective when we're looking at the story in that way. And some might immediately start thinking, does that mean then that I really have no control over my life if God is just going to determine what the outcome is going to be? You know, what about my free will? Don't I have any control over my own destiny? Don't I have any control over what life is going to bring? Those are all good questions, which is why we need to consider not only God's sovereignty in the midst of the story that we've just read, but also God's sovereignty in your life. What does God's sovereignty look like, his control, his rule over your life? Uh, for a moment uh, to address that, I want to not actually directly address the tension um, between God's sovereignty and free will, but rather I want to just consider the alternative. I want to, just for a moment, consider a world completely dependent on our free will without God's sovereign hand involved. And I wonder, have you ever truly considered the weight of that kind of scenario? Uh, in the theologically rich movie, Back to the Future, um, which, by the way, is such a weird movie. Thinking back on the 80s was a weird time. Anyway, side note. In the movie Back to the Future, we see the results of a world in which a person has complete or control over their own destiny. In one of the opening scenes uh, of the movie, they're about to go back in time, uh, and because there's concern about ruining the future, Doc Brown, who's this, uh, this uh, brilliant mad scientist who has created this time machine, he's talking to Marty, who's a high school student, why they're best friends, no one ever explains that in the movie, but they're like best friends, and so Doc Brown's about to take Marty back into the future, and, and Doc Brown says this to Marty, he says, don't talk to anyone. Don't touch anything. Don't do anything. Don't interact with anyone and try not to look at anything. And the reason being is because if you do, you're going to ruin the future of what could happen afterward. And it strikes me about that, what strikes me about that caution is that if you really believe 
that you have complete control over your own destiny. That is exactly how we would live life. We don't want to mess anything up or we will ruin the future. If we're serious about every decision we making, controlling our destiny, there's a lot that we could mess up. Fast forward, final movie. There's multiple movies if you don't know. In the final movie, Doc Brown has some final words to Marty, and he says something similar, but he tries to put a positive spin on it, but it's basically the same idea. He says that your future hasn't been written yet. No one's has. Your future is whatever you make of it. Now, for some, these might sound like really wise statements. And they're also very modern notions of human autonomy, that we have our, uh, our rights to craft our own destinies. But I find any real substance in how those ideas actually play out. Because who can really, honestly live that way without ignoring the weight that comes if you were to seriously live life in that kind of way. I mean, if we really believe that everything that we do changes the trajectory of our lives, if we're really considering that deeply, then you will be forever burdened with Doc Brown's first statement that you could really, really mess some things up for yourselves. Just one bad step could completely collapse your entire life. Plus, let's be realistic with ourselves. What you know about the world and what is best for you is not nearly complete enough to actually properly make good decisions all the time. I mean, think about it. As you get older, you get better and better at making decisions because you get wiser and wiser, right? We know that to be true. But I think back to the way I thought 15 years ago, and I'm horrified by that person. And the reality is that in 15 years from now, I'm going to look back at myself right now and be horrified at the person that I am right now. And it's horrifying to think that I'm going to be horrified one day. But do you know what all of that makes me want to do? Nothing. I don't want to do anything for fear that I'm going to mess something up. I don't want to make decisions. I don't want to have to wrestle through anything because in the end, I could really destroy my life and get to the end of my life one day full of regrets, feeling like I wasted my entire life. And I bring this up because denying the sovereignty of God, if you're thinking about it deeply, will inevitably lead to despair because you have no idea what the future holds. And every one of your decisions could completely collapse the life that you maybe want. Not to mention, not only are you banking on your ability to make the right decisions, we're also relying on other people to do the same. I mean, don't you see how every single day your life's trajectory is intertwined with people that you know, people that you don't know, and people that you never knew existed? The reality is that people you don't even know exist could very well make a decision that upends your entire life. We have no control over what is to come when we step outside of a God who's in control of all things. And so while that in one way, believing in the sovereignty of God produces all kinds of questions, questions to wrestle through, rejecting the sovereignty of God in our life produces a far bleaker outcome. You have no control 
whether you believe it to be the case or not. And even think about, you know, the, the lives that we're leaving right now. You know, the successes of your life are not your own, no matter how much you believe them to be. And I hear this all the time. You know, this whole idea that no one gave me anything. I have what I have because I worked hard for it. And people without, they just need to learn how to work harder and they can have the same thing. With all due respect, you're wrong. There are many people who have done the same things that you've done. They've worked just as hard as you've worked done nearly everything that you've done but have achieved absolutely no success. Why? Because there are other life circumstances that intersect with our lives that produce the lives that we have, including our successes. You know, the successes that we all might have in our lives, we have them because along our journey, there have been maybe people, certain people that have come into our paths that have opened certain doors for us. Or there have been opportunities that presented themselves right at the proper time, the perfect moment for us to be able to engage those opportunities. You know, maybe your career begins during an economic boom and not a recession, and so that kind of sets a whole trajectory for your life. Maybe you were born into a particular family or in a particular country or a particular time in that country's history. You did none of that. And yet all of those circumstances, in one way or another, even produces the successes that we have. There's a whole host of things that we had no control over that's produced. Plus, you come from a whole line, generations of people that had their own contexts that even allowed you to be born in the circumstances that you are. So even your successes, we can't take full credit for. And the same is true even about our failures. Even our bad decisions come with more context than I think most people are willing to consider. I mean, sure, of course, we all need to take responsibility for our actions and for our failures 100%. But there's a whole host of things, things that we did not control that provide context for our bad decisions and bad choices. You know, childhood traumas, economic collapses, the bad decisions of other people, they all can impact the decisions that we make. Even if, in some ways, we failed, we also recognize that there's a whole host of things that have brought us to the place of making those bad decisions. And the point is simply this. is just as with Isaac and Rebecca, your life, in part, is connected to your decisions, yes. But unless we recognize the sovereignty of God in our lives, life just becomes debilitatingly complicated. And on top of that, there's no real hope that our lives have any objective meaning or purpose or end, because in the end, meaning and purpose require intention, and intention is missing from a life dependent on random chance. And so while a life dependent on the sovereignty of God and the purposes of God, again, comes with its own questions— about why God does what he does, why God allows what he allows. Rejecting the sovereignty of God and the purposes of God prevents a far more complicated and, dare I say, bleak outcome. But I want to suggest that though many questions are raised when we consider the sovereignty of God, his control and power over all things, an affirmation of the sovereignty of God is actually our hope. So finally, let's take a look at God's promises 
and his sovereignty. Uh, a sovereign God that holds and orchestrates all of human history, we must see, is our hope. Because that means that we can trust that what God promises, he will actually do. Now, you can't look at redemptive history and not see the relentless consistency of God in keeping his promises, even though at times the free will of humans might seemingly derail his plan. And this is the narrative of the scriptures, that despite humanity, God still keeps his promises. I mean, think about the ways that we've even already, in this narrative, in Genesis, we see how humanity seems to be just constantly trying to undermine the promises of God. For example, we've seen already in this story of Abraham, he had some serious mishaps. Abraham put his wife's life in danger because he was more concerned about protecting himself than her. Abraham, he sexually exploits an enslaved woman in order to circumvent the issue of childlessness so that God's promises might come true. He tried to use sin to accomplish the promises of God. Isaac is evil, easily uh, deceived, as we just talked about. He blesses the wrong son, and we'll see that Isaac's son, Jacob, will spend a lifetime. Not, he didn't just manipulate his father. He'll spend a lifetime manipulating people to try to get what he wants. Judah, his son, Jacob's son, Judah, he would sexually abuse others. And yet, even just in this first couple of generations, right, we see the horrendousness of these individuals constantly warring against the righteousness and justice and purity of God. Even still, we see God continuing to keep his promises. And if you were to play out the generations that would follow, you're going to see all kinds of murderers and adulterers, the greedy and licentious time after time after time, this whole line of wicked people doing horrendous things. That line is the line of Jesus, the Redeemer, the Savior of those sinners. It's through this line of Abraham all these sinful, broken people that God keeps his promises, which is that one day the nations would be blessed through Abraham's line. That promise is the promise of Jesus coming. And Jesus Christ is the sovereign fulfillment of every promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not because of them, but in spite of them. And because God remains sovereign, in Jesus, we shall see his promises again come to fruition. This same sovereign God that promised this blessing to Abraham is the same God for, uh, who in Christ tells us in John 3, 3 that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The sovereign God who made promises to Abraham also makes the promise of Ephesians 2 that we are saved by grace through faith. It's the same God who in all things works together things for good for those that are called according to his purposes, Romans 8 tells us. It's the same God who promises us that though we experience light momentary afflictions, that he's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, we're told in 2 Corinthians 4. The same God that promised redemption and blessing 
to Abraham is the same God who makes those promises to us, to those who trust in Jesus. When we trust a God whose sovereignty is over all things, we have hope to believe that no moment is wasted, no tragedy is wasted, no uncertainty, no season of fear, no success, and no failure will be wasted. They're all parts of him in the end. Proverbs uh, 16 tells us that God works out everything to its proper end. My good decisions, my bad decisions, all of it, the good decisions and bad decisions of others can never derail the fact that God is working out all things to its proper end. And Jesus Christ is proof that God will accomplish his, his purposes, that he will keep his promises regardless of us. Now, having said that, I want to end on this note because I do recognize that what I'm describing does bring some tension. Specifically, the knowledge of the sovereignty of God, it can really be cold comfort when we are in the midst of hard seasons. Uh, it can be cold comfort when we experience wicked experiences in this broken world. It can be a cold comfort when we see the evil and the violence of this world. And in particular, the tensions rise when we begin to consider how can a good God, who is apparently all-powerful and sovereign, in control over all things, how can this good God allow tragedy, suffering, and evil? And I just want to say, if that's a tension you feel, it's a good question to ask. And it's one that Christians have been wrestling with for centuries. And to be honest with you, I'll be upfront and say, I don't have a sufficient answer. I don't know all the reasons why God allows what he allows. But what I do know, I know that it's not because he doesn't care. And I know that he cares because in his love, he steps into our sinful, broken world in Jesus. So he's not apathetic to it. Rather, he stepped into this broken world. I know that it's not because he's unjust, because I also know that all sin and evil will be judged either on the cross or before his throne of judgment one day. I know that he allows what he allows, not because he is powerless, because I know that he also holds resurrection power that breathes life where there is death. And so, while I don't have sufficient answers for why God does what he does. I, I cannot explain to you the infinite and eternal mind of God. I do have some thoughts that I want to maybe put in front of us that for us in our finite minds, our temporary minds, some things that we might be able to consider as we wrestle through that tension of God's sovereignty. Years ago, uh, my family and I, we were in a really hard season. I won't bore you with all the details, but there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of big questions uh, that were in front of us. It was frankly one of the hardest seasons of our lives, uh, particularly because I could not, for the life of me, figure out what God was doing, where he was leading, or what he wanted from me. And during that season, uh, because God is gracious and kind, I came across a sermon that was incredibly timely for me. Uh, there's a lot that I could recapitulate uh, about that sermon, and I won't, but there's a really crucial point uh, that was being made about seeking God's guidance 
in the midst of uncertainty. And the preacher said this, that God's guidance in the Bible is more something God does than something God gives. Some say, I need God's guidance. However, you're standing in it. It's a current moving you along. That statement has stuck with me over the years. Because if it's true that we really are in God's river of history, so to speak, then there's this sense of trust that we can have that we're headed in the right direction. And that again, God will lead all things to its proper end. And that whatever might come along that journey, there will be times when we will be completely void of any certainty about where we're heading, any kind of peace, turbulent waters might come. But because God's sovereignty, his guidance is something that's moving us along, it's something that we can also trust that God is leading us to where he desires to go and that it's okay that we're going to experience times that lack peace, times that seem uncertain. And the reason why I know it's okay is because that lack of peace that we may at times had, even Jesus experienced that lack of peace. You remember on the, the night before his crucifixion, you know, if, if we had asked him, Jesus, do you feel a very real peace about the fact that you're going to be tortured to death tomorrow? I'm going to venture to guess he would say no. And I feel confident in saying that because of what he prays. Remember the prayer that he prays. He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Right? Jesus lacks all peace here. And now while I would certainly not consider the weight of you know, my circumstances even remotely close to the weight of Christ's experience before going to the cross, the idea remains that there will be times when it just seems like life is so overwhelming. But of course, that is not all that Jesus prays. For though he was struggling with his life circumstances at the moment, you remember the other part of his prayer? He prays, Lord, take this cup from me. But then he prays, yet not my will, but yours be done. Do you know what that prayer is? That is a prayer of trusting the sovereignty of God. It's moving him along. God will accomplish his purposes. And those purposes will be good, right, true, just purposes. And as I think about my own life, even if I inadvertently or vertently, advertently, what is that? Make a bad decision. Or if someone else makes a bad decision that affects me, or if some unforeseen circumstance befalls me, I can trust that the consequences of that decision will be part of God's working things to their proper end. I don't have to worry about what the future is going to hold because I trust a sovereign God who holds that future. I trust that nothing will de derail the ultimate purposes of God. I trust with full confidence that we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. That's the hope of the Christian. I don't know what's to come. I don't know all that's going to meet me along this journey, but I believe that God is bringing me and bringing all of history to its proper end. And so my hope would be that we are able to look upon Jesus and see that God is faithful. He accomplishes his promises. He accomplished the promise to Abraham. He's going to accomplish the promises that he's given to us. And while it might not give us all the answers that we need, at least it gives us hope to know that the destiny of the future is not in our hands. It's in the hands of an all-powerful, almighty God 
who's for our good and is leading us in all things to its proper end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are um, this all-powerful, mighty, sovereign God. And even in this power and might, uh, you know us. You see us. You love us. You call us. You walk with us. On the cross, Jesus died for us. In his resurrection, he gives us hope that we too will experience a resurrection. In his ascension, he sends us spirit who resides within us. God, you are powerful, and yet you are also near. And Lord, that matters as we live a life that comes with so many uncertainties. Lord, I I pray that you would help us to not think about our lives as something that we control, but rather that we would see our lives as in your hands. That, Lord, there are questions that come, difficult, hard questions that we may never have answers to about why you do what you do and why you allow what you allow. But, Lord, I pray that we would still have a hope and a trust that even the most difficult of life circumstances, you will work for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And Lord, remind us that the alternative is a bleak one. That there's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's no proper end. But remind us that that is not true, that that is a lie, a distraction from what you are sovereignly doing in this world. Give us hope. And may that hope be rooted in Jesus the one who proves that all your promises will be fulfilled. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.